are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands and I am married to a Palestinian. We live in Beit Safafa between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and we run Singer Cafe and Al Chisar Bar in Beit Sahur. Before moving to Palestine in 2013, I worked as a teacher and tour guide in the Netherlands. I have a degree in history and in tour guiding and many years of tour guiding experience. Due to the COVID pandemic, tourism in Palestine came to a complete halt and that's why I started Stories from Palestine podcast in August 2020. This is the second year of the podcast with every week on Monday a new episode about the history and heritage of Palestine as well as the reality of life today. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. This is the last episode before I take a break over Christmas. During the Christmas holidays, you can listen back to episodes you have missed in the past, or you can just enjoy your holidays. No pressure. But I did hear from several people that they had not been able to follow up on all the episodes due to being too busy so hopefully you will find some more peaceful times in the coming weeks. This is the second part of the food tour with Isadine from Sacred Cuisine. In this part, you will learn about the one and only tahina factory in the old city that still roasts the sesame seeds in a wood oven. We drink and talk about Arabic coffee and typical sweets of the old city, including the sesame nut bars that are sold in the cotton market. And we finish the food tour in the famous Manbazata shop in Ghanezeet to talk about some typical Palestinian spices and of course about zatar and sumac. Remember, last week's episode finished with hummus and falafel breakfast at Abu Ahmed. So we pick it up from there after we finished our breakfast. No, no, no. We're about to... Oh, you're going to do something today. We're going to eat it. Oh, we're going to eat it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you got it for us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not... Yeah. Not too... I just, because I feel pretty full from the... I know, but I'm already in the motion. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> Now we're gonna go uh, drink some uh, coffee tea, oh, yeah. eat some sweets. So we have the nut bar, the nut bar, I call it. The sesame poutine bars, where we're gonna see now. We're gonna drink coffee and tea, eat some sweets, and then we're gonna go to the tahini shop. Yeah. And after the tahini shop, we will go to uh, the spice shop. Perfect, yeah. <laughs> It was like maybe because oh, the weather is bad. Cotton market, yeah. Yes, so yeah, cotton yeah, market. Yeah. So even the old city of Jerusalem, during the Uthman Empire, they did something about markets. They designated certain area to be a market. They close it from the top so it can have a shelter during the winter and also for the heat in the summer. And these places became the cotton market, the oil market, the spice market, the meat market where these places you can go and shop 
and you will be in a place where it is good for you to shop so you're not under the rain or under the heat but these markets of course are changing with time now the cotton market it's becoming a candy market where it's kind of sweets and such but the cotton market is the best to try in Ramadan because it become like a big coffee shop with the lights and the environment it's really beautiful but here we are for something really special which is the place Abu Yahya. We are here to try some of these nut bar, the sesame protein bar. This is a way to utilize the sesame and also to preserve the sesame and the nut. This protein uh, bar, they are made with honey to keep them all together and they use different type of a nut to kind of have a different variety. So you have the pecan, you have the pistachio, you have the mixed nut. And some of them also come with the coconut shred in the middle. It's like sesame with coconut shred, such as this one. Abu Yahya is the only man he do this by hand, and he's the only man left to do this. All the other options right now in the city is uh, made in a factory. And it's basically not using honey, they use uh, sugar syrup. So when I found uh, Abu Yahya, he used to sell in Damascus Gate. And uh, since I'm a kid, I always uh, know that he's there. I left the United States to live for some time. I came back, couldn't find him. But then I found him in the cotton market and I add him into my food tour because it's a, such a delicacy. And people can come and take as much as they want. It can be by the weight. So we're going to try some. What's your favorite? Pistachio or... Pecan or oh my goodness! Like uh, I don't think pistachio, honestly. I don't like pistachio. No, no, no. It's hazelnut, no? Yeah. Yeah. Hazelnut? Yeah. Come up. Marhaba. Keep Yeah, but 2006, I started coming in Bethlehem, and uh, I came the year after Yasser Arafat was uh, was killed or died or yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. This is completely a Jerusalem uh, old city vibe, especially being in this market, drinking coffee and tea and having some sweets of the old city of Jerusalem. This is like something uh, a lot of locals uh, do, you know, when they have some time in the day or when they start in their day. So Arabic coffee and Turkish coffee. A lot of people, you know, they come over here is like, this is Arabic coffee or Turkish coffee. And uh, the th things I would like to clarify about Arabic coffee. Arabic coffee take long time and long process to really make Arabic coffee. Especially in the time when they used to roast their coffee and roast their beans and like do the process. It take like a whole day to prepare a cup of coffee. 
And uh, nowadays, uh, the coffee we have, you know, it can be, uh, some people call it Arabic coffee, some people call it a Turkish coffee, but really Arabic coffee take a lot, a long time of brewing and also preparing. But what make it special is the cardamom. So when you have coffee with the cardamom, usually it's like, you know, fall in this category of Arabic coffee or Turkish coffee. But what I would like to share about the cardamom, cardamom is something they add to help in balancing the blood pressure. And that's why we drink coffee over here a lot, because uh, that cardamom, it's play that balance and also give unique flavor. And if you want a tip about uh, using cardamom, use cardamom just the seeds. If you take the peel out, the green stuff, it does have the bitterness in it. So if you really want to make fine coffee, you take the seeds inside the cardamom and this is what you use only. But yeah, cardamom is something we use in everything when it's come to our cuisine. We use it in cooking, we use it in sweets, we use it in coffee, in tea. So yeah, this is how much we love cardamom. <laughs> sweets, as you can see over here. This is an item, it's called dahdah. This is made out of somalina, walnuts and cinnamon. And they kind of bench it on the top to give it this uh, shape. This is one of basic symbol yet very delicious, what we call dahda. It's have a very interesting name, it's very catchy. And always in, uh, in my catering, I provide some of these sweets from the old city of Jerusalem because I'm from the old city and my whole mechanism and work based on not just to share my food, but to share the food of the old city. So one of the elements that my catering is built on utilizing some of these gems that we have in the old city, such as these sweets or some of the breads or the hummus from the shops of the old city. So in my catering, always the dahdah, it's get a lot of popularity and people, uh, they end up knowing the name because that catchy name dahdah, it can stick easily. But as you can see, fluffiness you know in the middle there is the walnuts and the cinnamon and if you come to the old city of jerusalem you will find it in uh, many many shops go look for abu sbeh and enjoy oh wow let's have some anise also that's unexpected i thought it's gonna be dry more dry but the inside is very soft and there is a, yeah, it's anise, the, the taste. Mm. You know, in Holland, when a baby is born, we serve people a kind of, um, it reminds me a little bit of the double baked bread that you have here, that you eat sometimes in the morning. Yeah, the cashella, but it's more flat. We add the butter or margarine and then we add uh, sprinkles of the anise that is covered in sugar. And we call them mice, like little, as if they are little mice. And we have them in pink and we may have them in blue. For the boy they do blue and for the girl they do pink. And they say that the anise is really good for the woman to start with the breastfeeding, with the nursing, for the production of the milk. So it became like a tradition to eat this on the birth of a baby as a celebration and to encourage for the mother to nurse the baby. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So this taste reminds me of that, of the, of the birth, the newborn life. Yeah. 
So this is what we call halbe. Halbe is basically fenugreek. It's the spice fenugreek. We take it and we mix it with semolina and flour and we make that cake. It's a special flavor. Uh, as you know, the fenugreek itself, it's very special flavor. And this cake is about celebrating this flavor. So people either like it or they don't there is no in between but they definitely they are one of the our oriental sweets that's uh, also here we have something else we have here uh, basbuse basbuse is uh, basically made out of a flour and also type of a yogurt you know they put yogurt and they top it with coconut shred and this is, is something also simple basic and tasty and finally we have the walnut fingers which we call asabe'ejoz and they are filled dough that is stuffed with walnuts and cinnamon and it rolled rose water syrup basically made out of sugar some rose essence uh, or rose petals which is make the sugar for all these sweets they just top it on the sweets and the sweets soak that uh, sugar syrup since i'm already overeating today <laughs> and i have zumba later so i will lose some calories nice. mm. oh yeah this is very particular taste with the fenugreek yeah and the thing uh, this flavor will stay with you with your sweat <laughs> so it's a flavor you will carry on for a day <laughs> What do you think people used before they started to use the refined sugars? What was the sweetener that was most used in Palestine? Because I know that from the Abbasid time, and then later picked up again by the Crusaders, making sugar from sugar cane was a thing here. Yeah. There was a sugar cane industry, especially around Jericho. So they already had sugar before, but it wasn't maybe as refined, like what we eat now, this really white sugar. Maybe they had like cane sugar. That's what I was thinking, because till today, you can go and you drink uh, cane sugar uh, juice. You can go to uh, like Silwadi in Ramallah, for example, he have it where you go over there and he have uh, the cane uh, bamboos uh, or uh, sticks and you put them in a machine and you get the juice on the spot. So yeah, it is still something till today they juice it. So the cane uh, sugar, it was our main uh, sugar, I, I will assume, but uh, I don't know much about it. But what I know, what I know actually about that of the story is in the 1900, the Victorians, they were obsessed with making things white. And they were obsessed with the differentiating themselves from the colored people. So they wanted to make even their consumption something more white. So from there, they start to bleach the grain, the sugar, the salt. And uh, they did many practices, which is some of them they were deadly, but they are about to make things white. And from there, the mentality of bleaching grains, it started and it continued till, to, till today. Till today, all our grains, not all, but uh, especially the flour is bleached, the sugar and the salt. And if you think about it, you know, if you hold the wheat, it's yellow. How come uh, when you look at the flour, it's white, tasteless, uh, no smell, whatever, you know? 
because of all uh, that bleach and uh, this is what created so many problems one of them is the gluten tolerance uh, and uh, and such uh, so that's what I know about whitening the sugar and salt and where it is started from and this practice it carry all over the world today and it became uh, if you want to buy something good it's white and and beautiful you know but it's funny because today what we are doing we are looking for that sea salt we are looking for that natural uh, sugar and we coming back and we thinking we are doing something new and modern but we are just coming back to the roots because this is where life and essence is in the roots yeah right is there a culture of seeing future in coffee uh, here in some countries like in turkey they use the yeah do you have this yes we have it in the morning most of the social activity was uh, around uh, the cup reading uh, now it's uh, much less of a thing but yeah it's it's a big part of the culture the cup reading they flip the cup oh they flip it they flip the cup and uh, the grounds they start to take a shape with the water and you will have certain things look like something which means something it's uh, it's very i would say it like this it's very good talkers yeah. you know? <laughs> and very uh, good ways of like how to relate things in the personal life of others to symbols and such صح وافي يا رب صح صح لا ابن حلال حبيبي الله يخليك صح صح you don't wanna charge us السلام عليكم كيف حالك عمي شو اخبارك ان شاء الله تمام سو طحينه واو يا سمي تحين بريسر in the old city of Jerusalem, we had many tahini presser where they prepare and make tahini. But today we have only two tahini facilities in the old city of Jerusalem. I'm taking you to Al Salhi presser because here he used the technique of roasting the sesame in the wood stove oven, which is nobody do right now. He's the only person left doing it, and that's why his tahini is more unique. I'm gonna show you inside. We're gonna go. Assalamu alaikum. الله يعطيك الف عافيه يا معلم شو اخبارك ان شاء الله صحتك تمام so we are here in the tahina facility here we see a sesame have been soaked in salty water to get rid of the shell the skin of the sesame after this they let the water dry next day they take it and they roast it in the wood oven this process is one of the toughest process for producing tahini because you have to toast the sesame from six to eight hours. The sesame is so small, it can burst easily, which means you have always to continue shuffle the sesame from the back to the front so you don't burn it. And that's why all the tahini facility factories today, they don't use this technique. They use automatic shifter and use steam technology to maintain certain heat. So it's much easier to control basically. But this is the only facility that I know here in the country using this technique. Especially in Jerusalem, they are the only one and it's such a treasure to be honest with you. And that's why uh, Salih Brasser is one of my spots on the food tour. And also, he sells this tahini here only. He does not supply any shop or any supermarket or anybody. 
But when you buy tahina from here, it's a hundred percent tahina, which is you cannot get in a lot of tahinas. So here he make two kinds of tahina: the roasted tahina and the regular tahina. I'm gonna take you to that side, where after toasting the sesame and after let it cool, the next day they will come here and they will feed the sesame into the feeders which this feeder will go right away to the stone these stones are 200 years old and they come from Syria they are one of the best stones for milling and this setup is the same setup was used 200 years the difference is before it was powered by animal force Today, it's by electricity. And if you look over here, for example, these are the holes where they used to put wood. So they stick it out and they can tie it with the animal so it can rotate. So imagine the flavor that's built in on that stone over the 200 years. And from here, the tahine will go right down into this barrel where you see a tahine. And this is, this is the tahini that everybody use and everybody know as far as the recipe. But here is the toasted tahini. And the toasted tahini is more reddish as a color. As far as the flavor, it's like peanut butter. And you see the darkness of it. Put your finger under it mm -hmm. if you like. Mmm. Mmm. Delicious. They sell this also? Yeah, they sell it here. And this is tahine, the roasted tahine. You cannot really find it in supermarket uh, or other places, only in tahine places where they make the tahine themselves. And that's what makes it this extra unique, that you come to the old city and you get the uh, red tahine, the extra roasted tahine. Just need to wash this for him. Voila, this is a, this is a treasure, this place. This is amazing. And that guy is just standing there. It's just like all day long, he's just pulling in and out. In a way, that's also spiritual almost. It's just like all the day, the same move. And you're producing something. In the end, the sesame seed, it's not a living being, but it can... It's in your hands. It could burn any moment. You have to take very well care of it so that your end product will be good, that the sesame seed will roast the right way. So you need to focus. It's not like you can do it without being... So, so you have to be super mindful. You have to be thankful of that moment all the time. Thank you very much for pointing this out. And this is actually where the Rumi, Jalal al-Din Rumi, the Sufi teacher, he used food to talk about his uh, teaching and his wisdom. He's one of the people that he found out it's very important to convey the message to the people, especially when you have a wise message, to convey it in a, in a language that they can relate and understand. And cooking as an everyday process, 
he like as you're talking about you know the mindful uh, process of uh, cooking the sesame and pay attention to the sesame it reminded me of the poem that's the Rumi wrote about cooking the chickpea and it's a conversation goes between the chickpea and the cook of the chickpea and it's such a beautiful poem that's like you talking about the sesame completely jump in my head and I'm thinking like even to write a poem about this guy yeah. <laughs> making the sesame because to be honest with you like uh, after some time I don't know who's gonna continue this we as a new generation we are very soft for this type of a work to stand six hours eight hours and to do this and as you said it's a treasure and I really hope this treasure continue and this process to continue to take a place because that's the only place left in Jerusalem who do this this is like UNESCO. <laughs> yeah, this is, should be on UNESCO World Heritage List. Well, maybe it will be your calling in a few years. When oh. you are fed up with everything, you'll be like, I'll just make tahina. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so here, it's not really a pleasant, but... Uh, this is the, the oil. Yes. So after they burst the sesame, yeah. they end up with the pulp. They take the pulp and they extract the oil out of it. Yeah. And originally, they will use the how making the wine method. They put it in a fennel and they step on it with their feet to extract the oil. But uh, they don't do it anymore, of course. They have uh, sesame oil. You know, that's a fact. The cooking, uh, fact about Palestinian cooking. Traditionally, we will use sesame oil and ghee for cooking. We didn't have vegetable oil. We didn't have sunflower oil. We didn't have... Storm. <laughs> yeah. So cooking falafel, it was defined the falafel, it was in the sesame oil. All our cooking was ghee or sesame oil. And this is something a change, of course, with the anirwa, of course, with the, you know, a new item, uh, more cheaper and uh, work with a bigger volume, they start to take over. Today, a few people cook with the sesame oil and ghee. Because I remember you also saying that rice, even though rice was available in Palestine before, but not on a big scale, it, rice doesn't grow here, so it's not a local native product, that it was introduced on a bigger quantity scale when the United Nations came to bring oh, no. food supplies for the Palestinian refugees after 1948. So exactly. these sort of products, like the cheaper products, rice in bulk and uh, oil, cheap uh, vegetable oils in bulk, they were introduced by the UNRWA, the United Nations Relief Work Agency, Mainly, of course, they were introduced by other, like, for example, eating rice, it was luxury. So at that point, before who was eating rice, a person had the leverage, had the money, had a status. You cannot just eat rice, you know. And actually, what they used to do, they would cook with the bulgar or friki, the local grains. And if they want to make it a bit fancy, they will cook some rice and they will put it on the top as a garnish. But somehow, even people are so offended as a Palestinian when you tell them like rice was not big in the cuisine and they are so fast to fight it, you know, and be like, no, but it is, uh, this is the reality because imagine there is no farms of rice over here. So rice was like something really prestigious. And now the rice is replaced to Frike and Bulgar. And, uh, you know, Frike and Bulgar becoming this exotic items, you know, on the table. And this is how funny the situation. <laughs> yeah, upside down. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, sesame oil was uh, our main cooking. Yeah. 
And the Asian sesame oil, for example, if you use a few drops, it's overpowered the taste. Here, it's much neutral because uh, the toasting, they don't taste it a lot. So it is not really so strong. So you still can cook with it and you still can uh, have uh, not overpower the flavor. Here, I want to show you the fennel they used to use for putting the kupse. This is what we call kupse. This kupse is basically the pulp of the sesame. After they grounded the sesame, they got the tahine, use the tahine, they got it out of it, they will end up with this. They will take this bulb, what we call kupse, and they will put it in a fennel, that large fennel, and traditionally they will use their uh, bare feet to step on it and extract the oil. Today this method is not used, but they still have the fennel and it's made of a stone if you realize that's how much it was a big part of the process. And kupse is something that's especially for mothers who breastfeeding new, they will give them kupse to eat, as what you were saying earlier about the anise. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this kupse, it goes bad in a matter of a day. If you don't add sugar into it or anything, it will go bad. So it is something that's uh, very delicate. In the same time, it's very healthy. Yeah, so... We're going to have uh, some tahine, uh, roasted one. Yes. tahine kbire, hamra. And all this tahine for 30 shekel, which is very good price. Yeah. Very, very good price yeah. for pure tahine original from uh, the yeah, old city. I just, he was telling me the other day about uh, the business here. Mainly it was in Lud. Lud? In Lud, ah. city of Lud, yeah. they will produce the sesame over there. And Lud was uh, on the route of exporting Jaffa, you know, this yeah. is where all the business was happening. So Lud was a big city for business. So all this factory was over there because they had more water than Jerusalem at the time. But in 48, when they became refugees, they took everything and they brought it here. And it's been in that location fixed. Before that, it was kind of Lud, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Lud. It was here more of a selling point, and the production was over there. And now everything is here. <laughs> Would you like to drink some fridge juice? Pomegranate, carrot. Oh, well, yeah, maybe. Oh. How are you? 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 How are و خلي الثاني مثلها ادش غلبك ابو مان لحاله لا اسهلك انا بحب رمان لحاله بس اذا اذا رمان مع بوتان ما عنديش مشكله رمان الون فور مي اتس بيت اتس نوت بيتر وات از ات اتس اتس ا كايند اوف ا دراي بارتيكولر ويتش يو دونت هاف وين يو ايت ذيم وان باي وان اف يو ايت ذيم لايك ذيس بات وانس اتس سكويز ذير از ا كايند اوف ذيس از فور يو يا I already finished it. <laughs> Thank you. Shukran. Habibi, enjoy. I'll take a So, yeah. No Coca Cola on my tour, but the fridge juice. Till Afi, Allah, we. Okay. 
We are at Manba' Zatar. Manba' Zatar store, it means the source of Zatar. Because here they take Zatar seriously. As you can see, there is a beautiful mountain of Zatar, which we will show you the picture of it, where they take time and bride in building it. And if you come to the old city of Jerusalem, it's one of the places you will recognize by that beautiful mountain of Zatar. And almost any picture of the old city of Jerusalem, it will be around that place. From Jimmy Oliver to Chef Tarek Tyler and other celebrities, chefs and foodies, been to that place. It's like Mecca of spices and ingredients in the old city of Jerusalem. Here, they set the palate for all of us by creating the recipes of maqlouba, falafel. They still following their grandfather who established this place. They still have his recipes and they follow the same recipe. And that's why this recipe of uh, the falafel spices, uh, maqlouba, shawarma, are distributed to all the shops and also the people who come here. So people are very used to this palate and they are kind of the anchor of this palate of the old city. And when it comes to spices, there is so many spices to talk about. There is many spices, that's the word we share, all of us kind of the same spices. But here we want to show you some and highlight of the, the Palestinian spices. The most important spice, it's not actually a spice, uh, but it's uh, actually a nut, butom. Butom, it's fallen off the Palestinian table due to the wall and restriction because it's kind of grow in the wild on very big tree and it produce tiny barrels of different colors, similar to popcorn. But they are close to pistachio, pistachio tree. Actually, one of the names for them, it's called the pistachio of the poor people. Because uh, before, you know, to have pistachio it was even more expensive and hard to get than now. So people will use this as an alternative. Why this is very important? This is one of the main ingredients that go in the za'atar blend. A lot of za'atar blends today, they don't have the bottom. Here they do, and that's why you have bottom. If I want to evaluate a Palestinian chef or a spice shop or someone with the knowledge about Palestinian food, I will ask them about the bottom. If they know about it, I'm comfortable to continue the conversation. If not, then I have so many questions because this ingredient, it's a heritage and it fallen out of the Palestinian table, something very alarming for me. And now it's one of the things that I work to kind of bring it back in a different ways. I do like a peppercorn mix, different type of peppers, and I add to it this into spicy grinders. And also you can use it in baking. You can make dough, and this is one of the traditional way to eat it, is they make a bread, and after they finish making the bread, they will slap it on the bottom, and they bake it, and you will have that nutty flavor into it. I add it to lebani when I make lebani bowls and such, and we can try them. If you want to try, you can try. They have nutty, sourness, woody part into it. So this is bottom. And what's about the bottom? In English, it's called Bistika Palestina. So when you come to the definitions, worldwide, this is what it's known. This is show you the connection of this thing into Palestine and show you the Palestinian element, how it is go back in history since long time. So till today, they're called Bistika Palestina. 
and there is different pistachio all over around the, the world. This is the Palestinian kind in specific. So this is about pistachio palestina. Another spice that we always use and talk about is the sumac. The sumac as a spice, I want to try to get you the whole. This is sumac. Sumac actually it's a berry. It's not a spice. It's a berry. And the seed inside, it's uneatable. It's very, very tough. So what we are using, we are using just the shell. So this seed, see it's a black, it's very hard to grind. But this is what we are looking for. We are looking for the skin. This is alternative for sourness. So if you don't have a fresh lemon, you need some acidity, some sourness. You can have it from the sumac. Sumac, we use it as a garnish also on top of a lot of things, grilled meat, hummus, baba ghanouj, because sumac is one of these things that lose its flavor as you cook it. So that's why it's more on a garnish side. But the best way to kind of talk about sumac or to demonstrate it is through a dish called imsakhan. Imsakhan as a dish, it was created as a result between a competition between the farmers of olive oil. As the olive oil is something very precious and something we take a lot of pride and something you inherit from your family to family, so everybody wants to continue to take care of the olive according to their family standards and everybody think he have the best olive. So farmers competition always who have the best olive, they want to settle in. They try to think how we can put this argument and how we can know. So they thought about the idea of heating the oil because when you heat the oil, it is when you know more characters about the oil because if you burn the oil, for example, you will turn the flavor texture of the oil. And according to when it's burned, it shows the quality of the olive oil. So they thought and they came up with the idea to take the tabuni bread, soak it in the olive oil as a buffer. So kind of they don't cook the oil straight. And Musakhan dish was invented in the field beyond the kitchen. It was in the field, so they picked some of the sumac where it is a lot of an onion, the most simple vegetable, and they created the, the musakhan. And they can tell, you know, by which uh, oil they use, if the oil changed the flavor or not. That's why the dish called the musakhan, because musakhan as a term, it's meaning heated up. If you're making a fresh dish, you don't call it heated up, but the whole idea was not to cook the onion and sumac, it was to test the oil, to heat up the oil and see where's the quality of the olive oil. So, musakhan is loaded with sumac and olive oil on the tabuni bread and this is the best way you can experience the sumac flavor. And uh, something about the onion and uh, the sumac make, they go very well together. And you know, as we are talking about, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, some of the oils we're using was the sesame oil, the other is ghee. This is the ghee. The ghee is basically clarified butter. What's a clarified butter? It's butter actually, just cooked on low heat till the lactose molecular separated from the fat. Then you can easily scoop this lactose molecular and you will end up with samne, the ghee. They add some turmeric into it and some spice to give it that color. And uh, this is one of our main fats. To cook with this, you already have a flavor without spices. Just like to use this fat, you already have a flavor. And this is what we call samne. Do you want to know another fact about the Palestinian cuisine? These our main grains before rice was available over here. We were eating these 
grains and some others, but this is kind of like to highlight. This all come from wheat. Juiche, frike, burgol, they all come from wheat. So if they all come from wheat, what's the difference? The difference is the process of making it. Juiche, for example, it is baked when the wheat is developed completely and it's dried, simple as many grains. But when you come to the frike, the frike it's picked when it's green before it's completely developed and it's fire roasted, which give that a charred flavor into it. And another one, a bivrol, bulgar, it's basically picked as a juice, but then it's boiled and then it's dried. That's why bivrol take nothing almost to cook because it's already moisture. So these makluba, tumjadra, all our grains, mansaf, they used to be made with these ingredients. Today, you barely can try them with these ingredients because everybody switched to rice. But if you go to the north, you ask for mjaddara, most of the time you will get it from frike or burgul, which is traditionally how it's made. So this is our grains before rice took over. And uh, another item I want to talk about, kishik. This item is in contribution of the Bedouin into the cuisine. The Bedouin, they live in the desert in very heat in a very heated environment and they use animal as a source of income, food and such. So they don't have vegetables, they have mainly the meat and the dairy. So living in the desert and having a lot of dairy, they thought how they can preserve the dairy. And this is the result. It's beyond intelligent to think in this way, to preserve a dairy that can stay for one year at least. So they took the milk, turn it into a yogurt, from yogurt to turn it into a labane, from labane take all the water out completely, and they end up with the kishik. And actually this dried yogurt, they mix ghee with it, and then they dry it, not under the heat directly, in kind of special place, and they let it dry for a few months, and you will end up with this stone. This is like very hard. It's a lot of salt also to, to help it to preserve. And this is give a birth for a dish called mansaf. Mansaf as a dish, it's rice. Traditionally it was bulgar or jvise. This, they soak it in water, and then they boil some lamb meat and they take that stock and they cook it all together and they blend it till it's smooth. And then you have this saucy yogurt sauce, which have very special flavor. You either like it or not. And this is uh, what the mansaf, mansaf as a dish, we eat on every occasion, every occasion from birth to death, congratulation, wedding, a new baby, graduation. So mansaf is the dish you always eat as a celebration or gathering. So yeah, this is what we call kishik. Another way you can use it, you can just shred it on top of your salad. And one of the ways which I really enjoy, a technique I got from a grandmother of very close brothers to me. It's a recipe from Hebron actually, where they take that kishik and they shred it. They take a tomato and they shred it also, they don't cut it. And they take a garlic and also they shred it and they put some olive oil and they bring it all together and you eat it with a piece of bread. Something really interesting and they call it mtawame, which means garlicky. When you say mtawamehim, there is different version of mtawame, but uh, this is one of them. This is what we call dukka. Dukka, it's a recipe created by the ancient Egypt. The pharaohs, they created the dukka as a recipe for long living and well-being. 
The whole idea of the recipe is to take spices and roasted wheat, toast them, grind them together, and you will have this powder. And this powder is full of nutrients and benefits. And how they ate it, they take a bread and they put it on olive oil, and then they put the bread on the dukkah, and then they will eat it as it is. We, as a people of the Middle East and people of uh, the Palestinian people, we take a look at the dukkah, and it inspires us to create the za'atar. So the za'atar is what you see over here. It's basically 10% za'atar plant. The rest is spices, olive oil, sumac, and roasted wheat. So we took the dukkah, we add to it the za'atar blend, and we end up with the za'atar blend, which everybody call it za'atar, and it became more popular than the dukkah, the za'atar, and that's why if you go to Gaza till today, you will see everybody eat dukkah and not a lot of za'atar because the influence to Egypt, the closeness, also they don't have in Gaza a lot of za'atar as what we do in the mountains of uh, Jerusalem. But inspiration of the za'atar come from the dukkah. I hope you enjoy the food tour. I hope you learned uh, something in you. And you can have this experience by coming here to the old city of Jerusalem and I will walk with you and to take you to, to eat some of the stuff you see today and others. Have a good one. Assalamu alaikum. If you want to see some of the photos and videos I took during the food tour, follow Stories from Palestine on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. And even better, find Stories from Palestine channel on YouTube, where you can watch all the videos I am producing. That's where you can see some visuals that go with the podcast audio. Thank you for listening to Stories from Palestine. If you enjoy the podcast, then here are several things you can do to support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast. Share some of the social media posts on Instagram or Facebook. Start following the YouTube channel. You can also hear the podcast audio there. And soon I will start uploading videos. Sign up for the email list so that you get a reminder with a clickable link to the new podcast episode. And in the future, you will be updated about programs and trips that I will start to organize. And of course, you can donate to help me pay for hosting the podcast and the website and all the related recording costs. It's the only source of income I have at the moment, so you can imagine how much I appreciate every cup of coffee or falafel sandwich that you buy me on the coffee platform. All the links that you need can be found in the show notes and on the website storiesfrompalestine.info. That's it. I hope you will tune in again next week. <laughs> <laughs>